Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Saurabh Vyas is the co-founder and chief experience officer at Eva Health. In this episode, we talk about how Eva Health is empowering caregivers, what is a smart neighborhood, what is human-centered design, and why brand loyalty is so important. This is a great episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, hey Saurabh, how are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Uh, great to meet you, Zane. Yeah, so um, I'm really excited about this conversation because um, I think we're going to talk about some things that I, that are words that are used a lot, but people don't really understand them too well. Um, and you're somebody who brings a breadth of knowledge behind that. So I'm really, really excited about that. But before we start, uh, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Uh, for sure. Um, so I had a little bit of a interesting journey and definitely non-traditional for many of the folks. Um, I have always been passionate about healthcare in general. Both my parents are clinicians. Uh, so was trained as a physician uh, back in India and uh, was debating uh, between residency, but my first love was more technology, particularly in healthcare. Uh, and so ended up switching gears and uh, going through that route. So went into healthcare management, uh, spent uh, past 12 plus years in consulting, first at Deloitte and then at Solemn Consulting and had the pleasure of working across the entire spectrum primarily providers and life sciences and, and healthcare technology, obviously companies uh, where my uh, areas of focus uh, with a little bit of health plans kind of effort into the mix as well as like retail pharmacy and, and whatnot too. Uh, so yeah, have that breadth of uh, exposure uh, working with both small and large uh, companies and have had a front row seat um, advising many of them in terms of particularly how do you kind of like improve uh, from a strategic perspective, the operations, right? Um, how do you actually launch new products, particularly when it comes to digital health, virtual health, healthcare technology, you can call it whatever names. Um, how do you approach it with design? So acting as both a strategic advisor, as well as a product leader um, for these companies is the two roles that I played. Uh, and then goes without saying is like, you know, considering my physician background, also had the pleasure of working in the clinical side of things, particularly when it comes to uh, EHR physician adoption, uh, as well as digital health physician adoption piece. So uh, did uh, did a little bit of a deep dive uh, as part of that too. And then more recently and more excitingly, I switched over to my startup, uh, Eva Health. Um, and we are essentially an early stage company focused on uh, an area that we love. And that is how do we empower the families and their lives and simplify their lives essentially um, as they are taking care of loved ones with dementia. Uh, and so uh, that has been my pet uh, project, my baby, whatever you want to call it, uh, and excited to bring that to the market very soon. Yeah, I know. That's awesome. Um, uh, a lot of people I talk to, I, I reach out to people specifically because they have really cool and interesting journeys. And I think it's really, it's really interesting to see, like, you know, kind of get behind the curtain and what they were thinking along the way. And I, I seem like, it seems like every one of, Every everyone kind of has the same thing, right? Like they they 
they grew up, they wanted to do something good. And then they just saw, they didn't know, they just saw something else and they kind of went down that route and it turned out to be amazing. So, um, that's, that's pretty awesome. So we can touch on Eva health. Um, so you, you want to expand on it a little bit? So how are you, how are you guys helping, uh, caregivers? Absolutely. Um, so the, uh, me and my co-founder Carl, so we both actually worked together almost 12 years back now at Deloitte. Um, uh, both of have had a shared experience when it comes to our own family members and what we have observed, uh, caring for loved ones with like complex conditions, whether it is advanced uh, diabetes, dementia, uh, even cancer in my family, especially. And um, so having seen that up close and personal, we have observed that caregivers, particular family members, informal caregivers, right, uh, tend to be sort of like, you know, the front, um, the front guard, uh, so to speak, and spend, and, you know, spend not only the 98% of the time with the patient, but also have the responsibilities without any formal training or support. And many times, like, no matter, like, just imagine, right, like, Myself, my, as I mentioned, like my parents were clinicians. We were constantly called in by the rest of the family members to help out in one way or the other. But even then, there was a lot of constant struggle. And we have noticed the same thing with a lot of our uh, patients uh, that we have been talking to as well, is navigating this entire system. And this is not just from a clinical perspective, but especially the financial and the legal side of things uh, is a major challenge. The social elements of it is a major challenge. Um, so... Since there are a lot of moving pieces and nothing is one size fits all, like we are, all of us are individuals, the family dynamic also plays a big role. Um, so that realization essentially led us to build EVA. And at the essence of it is what we want to do is understand the needs of both the person with dementia and the family, and not just the need, but also get a perspective of what can help deliver a very acceptable as well as like, you know, out of the out of the world or out of the park experience at the end of the day. Personalize that experience or personalize that journey using about 150 plus decision points that we have mapped out throughout the screening to end of life care. Um, and what we are doing is building this AI driven ecosystem around it. So we can understand that unique family's needs or unique person's needs, uh, build that community care plan, bring in the right partners from our ecosystem which includes right now nonprofits. We have partnered with major health systems at this point in time, uh, cutting edge solutions, which also kind of uh, come into play and professionals and whatnot and bring it on the backside. We are like kind of like actually understanding all of these different, uh, uh, what we like to call ingredients uh, or pieces of the puzzle. Um, but uh, for the, the families, it's a very simplified experience. So they don't have to worry about what's next or what's, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's in the, in the moment too. All they have to worry about is how can I spend more time with my patient and what is that immediate next step? And Eva will be there uh, to assist you uh, throughout every step. So that has been our core focus. And uh, the intent there has been essentially uh, twofold. One is to reduce the stress and the caregiver burden, um, because as you can imagine, like we have an aging population. Uh, frankly, there's a declining caregiver-patient ratio. Uh, so even when it comes to professional caregivers, um, the costs are increasing, there's high turnover. Um, and uh, and on top of that, there is also a high preference when it comes to people wanting to age at home or age in the community at least. And in, in, in front of that, like families will need to bear the brunt uh, to the extent possible. So how do you actually prepare them and how do you provide that supportive network, right? without them being overwhelmed, because that is a major issue right now that we have been tracking as well as that burden 
essentially kind of not just destroys the life of the patient and their outcomes, but also the life of the primary caregivers and the other caregivers, right? Clinically and financially uh, to the extent, uh, to, to a significant extent. Um, and then on the second, so that's one is the caregiver burden. The second one is essentially for us is how do we build this next generation future um, healthy aging communities, um, particularly like smart neighborhoods uh, in our uh, key areas so that our elders can actually exercise wherever they want to age. We want to provide them the choice. It's either a facility, their neighborhood, or their home. It can be any, uh, any of them, uh, but they do have that choice, and we want to preserve that choice because that has been known to improve outcomes, uh, not just uh, what we like usually measure as clinical outcomes, but also what do I want to achieve out of my life, right? How do I want to uh, live and die with dignity at the end of the day? So that's something that we are preserving uh, uh, as well, the core concept. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, as someone who's who's been a caregiver for uh, somebody with dementia, it, I can definitely empathize with um, what you guys are building. It, I mean, it is, it is difficult. And then, you know, not only is it difficult in terms of like doctor's appointments, taking care of them and all that stuff, but then there's also the the other component of it where you see your loved one just decline mentally, you know, even forgetting your name in some cases. And it's just like this. So you're dealing with the emotional part, the mental part, and then the physical, all that stuff is, you know, that's, that's always there. It just, it's, it can be very taxing. And I think the biggest thing is just like watching your loved ones just kind of wither away right in front of you, you know, within months or something. So um, I love what you're building. Um, So you, so I have a, so when you so when you're saying like smart neighborhood and things like that, right? You know, I think it's really important. I think people forget that uh, patients where people want to be where they want to be, right? We don't want to be stuck in hospitals. We don't want to do this. And like a lot of times, people would rather just be at home, right? But there's a lot of problems with that, right? Just access to mm-hmm. care, access to food, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, so what do you mean by building smart neighborhood? Like what is what is your vision for that? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that. So um, as I mentioned, right, our focus is right now building this AI ecosystem, uh, which is kind of bringing all of these community elements together. Um, And so the first step essentially is understanding where the need is and how uh, you can best address that need in a personalized fashion, which is your families and your patients. Uh, What we are doing is essentially as part of our, you know, active business model, as well as our technology, is onboarding to a certain extent, uh, a lot of these different partners, right? So for example, you have your Meals on Wheels. Uh, Not obviously everyone will be eligible for it, but you have a significant amount of population which will be eligible for it. You have your Habits for Humanity, you have your nonprofits exclusively working on caregiver, uh, you know, uh, benefit and socialization, for example. You have um, very, very uh, exciting, uh, you know, um, interventions coming in from top-notch institutions like Emory, Henry Ford, Michigan, um, um, and other national centers of aging as well. Um, and then you have your general physicians and so on. So there are a lot of different moving pieces on one side, and this is like all the, um, you know, uh, all the, I would say, groups and individual professionals, right? And then on the other side, you also have policymakers who have a lot of initiatives going on uh, at any given point in time, uh, whether it is how do you get paid uh, as a caregiver of a loved one, uh, discounted drugs, whatever it is uh, that goes with it. So what we are doing, and I'm just giving you an, a little bit of an overview, right, is trying to bring some of these elements together in a little bit more cohesive fashion. But at the same time, they can do their own thing. 
the intent there is to leverage a lot of different kinds of AI to kind of create this connective tissue at the end of the day, which can coordinate a lot of these activities. So uh, it not only helps the caregivers kind of navigate like, hey, which ones would be relevant and how do I actually tap into certain things? Let's say, how do I get paid or can I get paid? Uh, as, uh, and then simplify that entire journey and process or what's next when it comes to financial planning based on my unique situation. Uh, or what's next when it comes to like, you know, uh, the next neuro neurologic, uh, neurologist that I need, right, for advanced dementia care, let's say. Um, but it also kind of like allows those other community partners uh, to have visibility into where the need is and how, whether that uh, need has been serviced or not uh, in that scenario. So um, that essentially, that visibility, that navigation almost kind of allows the community to function more closely as a single unit, right? Um, and that's what we are uh, essentially focusing on. And this is not, not just from the technology element of it, but also like the business models, the way we have structured the early stage as well as growth business models are essentially kind of keeping this in mind um, as, we, as we go through that iteration, like subsequent iterations. Yeah, no, I love it. I think, <clears throat> I mean, there's a couple of points. Um, one thing is, you know, um, sometimes people, uh, caregivers, even um, hospitals or physicians don't know certain programs exist or that they qualify for certain programs. So, I mean, just in itself, you kind of talked about visibility and knowing where the need is and all that stuff, especially for like nonprofits, because um, obviously they don't have the money to get their name out there. So I think that in itself is amazing, right? You know, you were talking about how caregivers can get paid for uh, taking care of their loved one. I mean, before I, sp I spoke to you, I didn't even know that, you know what I mean? Like, and I, and I dealt with oncology where all we're dealing is with caregivers. Right. Uh, so I think that's like, that in itself is an amazing product. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's just like so much of overwhelming amount of information that is there for both, not just the patients and their families, but also the providers. Um, and as you know, right, like it's, um, Unfortunately, given the razor thin margins, right, you have to constantly optimize the, the visit time, whether it's a physician or a nurse or whoever it is, everyone is on the clock for something, right? So even if you want to do the right thing, um, how do you maintain that continuity between visits has always been a challenge. And when I, I use the term visit uh, a little bit in a broader sense, because the visit is also applies to other professionals, right, ancillary professionals who are serving, even your nutritionist or your podiatrist, uh, has, it's a visit. Uh, whereas your general physician or your neurologist. And so um, it, optimizing everyone and kind of like, you know, making sure these handoffs uh, are are not just taken care of, but in most and more importantly, there is visibility across those handoffs um, as well is something that we are actually making sure. Now, I'll just give you one example, right? Like, for example, we were talking with uh, one of the nonprofits like Meals on Wheels, for example, um, there's a significant delay when a person is actually, let's say, discharged from a facility with certain special needs uh, till when they actually can avail um, uh, some of the benefits. And that is partly driven by the lack of understanding of like who's eligible, who is on target and so on. And even if those things are in place, uh, there is also, because there are so many humans involved, it's like just the communication gap, right? That goes in, it takes at least a few days, if not like several weeks. And if you are discharged from a hospital, um, every day counts. Like, you know, when you even think about a 30-day readmission, um, most of the, the complications actually tend to happen in the first two weeks. So if you're losing 10 days out of those two weeks, I mean, nutrition is a big element in that scenario. You are kind of like actually impacting uh, the crux of that problem. Uh, to a, quite an extent. 
And so those are the kind of just examples of things, right? Like where improved visibility as well as improved integration uh, uh, with different uh, partners uh, allows them to function better in whatever they are bringing to the table. Yeah, no. So so the, let's take that meals on wheels example. So if it can take a couple of weeks, right? So if the patient is being discharged, like how do you guys kind of work with that? Are you guys, do you, Are you guys plugged in with the hospital system, like in terms of EMR or like... Is there something that triggers you guys to be like, hey, this person might be eligible to Meals on Wheels. Let's get this started like, you know, a week before they're, they even step foot out of the hospital. So it's already ready to go. So how does that like work? Absolutely. It's a it's a combination of those uh, factors uh, that you just mentioned as well, right? So uh, on one side, we keep, uh, and, and this is going to be one of the things that we have been actively working on and uh, maybe a very strong IP for us too, um, is how do we use different parameters and different uh, data sources to paint this understanding of both the uh, the current as well as predicted needs of that uh, person with dementia um, and uh, and the family caregivers, right? So depending on their roles and so on. So that's one key element of it is that awareness from different sources. And obviously one of the key input there is different EHRs uh, and claims data. Uh, I say different EHRs because like usually in this population that we are working with, there may be eight to 12 physicians on an average. Not everyone is going to be, uh, you know, in the same uh, network, same system. Uh, and so to the extent possible, uh, we are actually actively trying to connect with different, uh, different of these providers um, through whether it's the fire interface, whether it is using AI to frankly like mine through some of the unstructured data as well. And then kind of create a, a sort of like a singular picture of that uh, of that you know unit. Again, I'm talking about the patient caregiver unit uh, and their needs and where they stand right now, right? And so those things are a starting point to allow us to kind of almost kind of create this like one-stop understanding of like here is the need of that family, uh, and here is what has been serviced or not, uh, and here is a community care plan um, that our partners can essentially effectively. Uh, engage with based on like you know whether they have the role to play or not like not a, obviously there are some segmented i would say because of privacy and security concerns we have some segmentations there so not everyone can see everything um but it's how do we act as a sort of like a singular reference point uh for that uh, for that patient uh and the family is what we are starting with and then that scenario that you just mentioned right like based on our understanding from both our, whether it's a direct partner or an integrated partner, it's like what's happening with the EHRN claims. We can have some triggers, we can detect some of the admissions, we can also have a direct trigger uh, if needed from the caregiver or the provider, uh, if they are part of the network. Uh, and then that sets off a cascade because now we have already some information and understanding of the documentation they will need, what is their status, all the general information that we need uh, for that family to make sure that we can at least cross-check like whether they'll be available, what's the wait time like and whatnot. And then we can transfer the right information to our partners um, in a more sort of proactive fashion uh, in their system uh, of choice uh, at the end of the day. Um, and then, uh, you know, eventually, obviously the aim would be to create a loop so we can understand like, you know, uh, whether that need was serviced or not, that would be the next step uh, as we go forward. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, so this community care plan, you, so is it kind of like a, a document that says like, hey, this person needs X, Y, and Z, um, and these are the partners that can service this kind of, you know, is that kind of like what you mean by the community care plan? 
Uh, that is correct. Uh, but it is sort of like uh, on a need to know basis. Mm -hmm. uh, and so obviously there will be some, like if you're a primary caregiver, obviously you will have greater visibility um, into like, you know, both the emerging needs as well as current needs. Let's say um, if you have chosen to, maybe your, uh, let's say a neurologist or a geriatrician may have that visibility too, of like a full visibility, right? Of like what's essentially coming down uh, when it comes to, based on their unique situation again, remember. Um, um, but uh, the the different participants, right, whether a service provider or a solution or a nonprofit, uh, will only know if they have a role to play, like sort of like potential role to play. Uh, so they will proactively understand um, and get notification essentially of that. Yeah, no, I mean, I love this because, I mean, healthcare is all about preparation, but our system is not built for preparation it's all built for reaction right you know like you leave the hospital like oh here call these eight numbers and you know figure it out right and you know being a caregiver and it's it's just a lot going on right and you're you're already working on because you have to do two things right you have to be the person's daughter father sister whatever and also be the caregiver and those two things are not mm -hmm. always the same right they're completely different they're completely different compartments and i think that's one of the struggles with caregivers as well is you're not allowed to share the moments with your loved one mm -hmm. as they're declining because you have to be the caregiver, right? I mean, I think people don't really understand that until they're like really in the in the process. So at least this alleviates, it, it, it helps you not be a caregiver as much as just being the person's family member. Exactly, exactly. And it's sort of like, you know, kind of takes the guesswork uh, out of the equation, because a lot of that stress essentially is coming off like, hey, how do I handle this situation? What's next? Uh, do I actually even know like what's next? And um, we have had literally we have talked to hundreds of caregivers, particularly persons with dementia. And no matter whom you talk to, whether people who are sort of like uh, coming in from low income families, uh, in uh, sort of um, underserved cities, let's say, you know, what uh, call, likes to call Bankhead and Bucket uh, in Atlanta. So Bankhead is relatively sort of uh, underprivileged uh, population, and then Bucket is affluent uh, neighborhood in Atlanta. And so the needs are different, but like the pain points are still somewhat similar. Everyone is thirsty for what's next. I just need to have better clarity on what I need to do, how I need to do it, how should I react for it, do I know that I have some support to lean on uh, if uh, you know um, I I kind of stumble, right? And just having that essentially allows them to focus more on like their loved one, just mm -hmm. as you were mentioning, right? Like kind of what matters is like spending time with that loved one and being there um, because already you are making so many compromises. Now you don't want to make an additional compromise on that relationship as well uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, no, 100%. And that's like one thing that I want to get into, like, why do you think, and I mean, you, you have a vast background in digital health and implementation, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Why do you think that, um, caregivers are forgotten so often in digital health, um, in general, or just in healthcare solutions in general? Um, I think there are several reasons for, uh, for that, um, uh, um, as you, uh, are aware, our system has been very focused on essentially this transactional mode of medicine, right? And it did not used to be the case, right? Like traditionally in all countries, including US, uh, you had this like sanctity of the physician-patient relationship. Physicians used to visit the home or nurses used to visit the home. 
and you know the care was delivered sort of uh, you know uh, in the home and that allowed them to actually interact very closely with the families as well so families were part of the equation um, because as such whether they like it or not they will be part of the equation um, I think that somewhere down the line, the the lack of time and the lack of resources, um, and obviously the model of care as it switched to more office and in facility based uh, approach, uh, that kind of like created this additional distance because like you do not have enough time essentially to explain one more person right to the extent possible and answer their queries and bring them along the journey. You are already struggling with like you know completing within in eight to ten minutes, maybe twelve. Um, and so how do you like, you know, kind of bring them? That's one. Two um, is um, when you think about the business models as well, right? Um, I would say to the extent possible that are very less or like, you know, uh, relatively less important uh, business models within healthcare that can include caregivers. And that has been so far to date, uh, you know, one of the major challenges as well is even if you create technologies, even if you create support mechanisms, to date, what was happening is, um, you know, the immediate focus was like, hey, let's kind of figure out like how the professionals can be part of the equation because there's reimbursement there, there's payment there. Uh, and so obviously business model is something that is very important um, and that drives the sustainability of the system. I think that discourse has been changing very recently. Frankly, I would say like when we started tracking this problem, right, as uh, around 2021 is when we, fully flushed this and uh, pitched it at uh, an LG competition and really uh, two accolades by the CEO there and won that prize is when we realized is like people still did not know the, the problem that lies ahead, which is this, the lack of professionals, the high turnover, frankly, the fact that even when it comes to physicians, physicians are leaving the workforce uh, in large numbers because of the burnout. So you have this gap coming up and there needs to be a solution that, uh, you know, that needs to be in play, which acts as an extension. So I think that realization is coming in from both, not just the innovators or like, you know, um, I would say health system administrators and whatnot, but also from policymakers that we, we need a different solution. Um, and that's why suddenly you see caregivers coming into focus. I feel like that's just going to accelerate by 2030, uh, which is between 2025, 2030, by our projections, it seems like we are starting to gonna hit the peak of uh, baby boomer population. Um, I think that's going to push really, uh, you know, push everyone to think about this even more aggressively. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. And I think that the interesting thing about when, um, you know, when, when digital health is, the main users are not always the patients. Um, but a lot of times the solutions are built for patients. So then it, you kind of leave the clinician out of it, right? Because it's not a great experience for them. And then, I mean, until very recently, caregivers were, I mean, a completely forgotten afterthought. I mean, like this whole movement of the caregivers that they're, is part of the team, I'm all for it because, again, you, they are the ones that are bringing everyone to the hospital. They are the ones taking care of it, making sure the medications are being taken care of, calling everyone, whatever, right? I mean, they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting, um, but it's just like an interesting thing. And, you know, we can kind of go into human centered design that way too, right? It's like healthcare is not human centric at all, but even people coming out of healthcare that come from like a human centered design background or like a UX background, or whatever, they also run into the same mistakes. Absolutely. And I, I was smiling as, uh, <laughs> as you're mentioning that, right? Because, uh, I, I think frankly, like even physicians or uh, not just physicians, any clinician, 
uh, clinicians have been left out or professionals in general have also been left out of the the design of like innovation, whether it's technology or otherwise, right? Workflows included uh, when it comes to like, hey, are we actually taking them along the journey? Otherwise, we wouldn't have the EHRs that we have right now. Uh, and with that, the, the, you know, life would be so much simpler. <laughs> so um, to your point, I think it's, um, um, it has been, it's been, it's very true, right? Even when we talk about patient-centered design, um, not many institutions actually truly uh, embed that in that ethos. And it needs to come in from that perspective of like, hey, do I have it at the ground level, right? Starting with the leadership, starting with like, you know, the mechanisms I have in place to actually innovate in this direction of approaching human-centered design and then actually delivering upon it. So it's simple when you think about it and it should be common sense because like, hey, customers, your own organization and your operations, you know, all need to be aligned. And I mean, it makes common sense, right? But it, uh, I think it does require intentionality. And so uh, to actually get to it and that intentionality comes with a trade-off as in like, you know, putting that extra effort uh, to make, uh, make sure that it is, you know, designed in the right way. And, you know, actually thinking from those different perspectives, it's always easy to like me telling like, hey, you know what, this is my perspective. And I'm guessing like I have, really high degree of empathy, this is probably what everyone wants, right? Um, but then you, if you think about human-centered design, you now need to spend much more additional time to actually engage, identify all different users and then engage with them and then kind of make sure that you are understanding, truly understanding, right, uh, what their needs are. Um, so that has been, again, it comes back to how low margin healthcare has been, how uh, inefficient many of the operations have been that I have seen. It's just that everyone wants to do the right thing in the operations when you think about it. Is And everyone knows, like, I mean, human-centered design is not a radical concept or rocket science, I would say, but uh, it's just time, money, uh, unfortunately, the priorities and that have defined the way things are done. And since there is some inertia built into any, in any case, right? Like when you're doing something, the way things are done, um, it has been very difficult to kind of steer that ship. Uh, even actively sometimes uh, organizations have struggled uh, when they've tried doing it. Um, and uh, that, has, that has been uh, the primary reason. Um, and unfortunately that, you know, as, we're, as I was mentioning to you the other day, as we were looking at these top 10 trends uh, in healthcare, that same holds true, unfortunately, uh, for even innovative startups. So it's not just a problem of bigger organizations. In case of innovator star innovative startups, essentially the problem has been more because of the investor pressure or the pressure to deliver at a certain growth rate because you always are like looking at the next round, which is again, obviously valid. Uh, but then um, um, the problem is further compounded because of like, you know, a lot of startups coming out these days is like, literally like one trick ponies and uh, healthcare is not one trick pony, unfortunately. Um, so, I mean, I wish like there was a silver bullet for all my pain, uh, I would take it, um, but it's not the case. And so uh, I think that, you know, intentionality, even if you have that initiative becomes very difficult to execute uh, in real life in some, in some situations. Yeah, no, um, I think that, I mean, this may be, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you can't just, be human centered, like after the fact, you have to build on human centric design, right? You know, like it has to be the core ethos of what you're building, right? 
And then maybe even before we start, uh, maybe we, you can define what human-centered design is. So um, at the simple, yeah, and, and by the way, I totally agree with you, right? Um, it's sort of at the, at the core of it is making sure that you are keeping the humans um, into the, in the, in the, in the focus of whatever you do when it comes of designing your organization, your technology, your processes, your business model, um, basically all the decisions that go uh, into a particular product, uh, whether it's a tangible or technical or a non-technical one. Um, and this, you know, often that gets left out, right? And that human-centered, it by definition, and it is just defined as human, that's it. Uh, it includes everyone who is part of that touch point, right? Uh, so you have your clinicians, you have your ancillary staff, you are in fact, frankly, or even your cleaning crew uh, um, is part of that equation. Uh, your billing crew is part of that equation. Um, caregivers obviously uh, are part of that equation too. Um, and so this is sort of like, you know, at a very high level, if I had to think about it, is just the way we interact with people and how do you make sure that interaction whatever the source or the, um, the channel of that interaction is is in the best uh, way possible that excites us, that kind of like meets or exceeds our expectations to the extent possible, and it's memorable. Um, and um, I would say that's pretty much it uh, at the core of it. Um, one thing I would also include in that is, and many times I've noticed many of my organizations with its clients or others, miss this out is not just the, the diversity of stakeholders that needs to be there uh, and have a seat at the table, um, but also that human-centered design is not just about a product. Uh, and this is especially important to know because um, if you're just coming in for like, hey, I need to just use these principles for my UX UI or like, you know, this technology, that I think misses the whole point. Um, and you already kind of are like lost to your earlier comment, you already are like lagging behind because you have, you know, not created a structure to enable that. You don't have the leadership. You don't have the organizational structure which can enable that constant sort of like, you know, human-centered thinking, right? Of keeping humans at the center of all the decisions that you are making about a particular uh, area. Uh, and then you don't have measurement mechanisms. You don't have actually any enhancement mechanisms, right? So UI UX is such a small piece of it. Like that's just almost like um, a way you, you know, do a particular step in that entire journey, but it starts much earlier um, and um, in, in, in practically everything that you do. And especially true in healthcare where, I mean, at the end of the day, so far we are treating humans uh, maybe there will be cyborgs in you know a couple of uh, uh, centuries from now. Um, but yeah, this is uh, uh, it makes common sense in a way. Yeah, and even though those cyborgs are going to still maybe it'll be cyborgs that are designed. But I mean, I completely agree with you. It's not. It's more than just UI UX. Um, and then there's this one this TED talk I listened to. I don't even know. It's been like 10, 12, 15 years or something. And it was about this architects uh, who went out to Africa to build them a hospital and. For them, first of all, they had a couple of problems, right? Um, getting to the location with building materials was uh, hard. Um, and then, you know, how do they build a hospital in this community? Because they didn't have the, you know, they couldn't have air conditioning, electricity, all these other things, right? So they were like, mm -hmm. so you know, like normal, the way we build things, oh, we're going to just build it with electricity. We're going to find a way to do it, whatever. So this guy went to ask the community, like looked around, like, and then he saw like how the, 
how the buildings were being built. It was like they were using rocks packed with something in these cages, and that's how their building blocks were. And then he looked at um, kind of like in the past, and he's like, hey, how come, how, why don't we invert the hospital itself, make the w- waiting rooms outside because it's not that cold, and, you know, there's a lot of malaria and, all, you know, like um, um, flu and stuff going on. So if they're outside, they're less likely to transmit it to each other, hence people getting less sick, right? So he built this hospital and he was kind of going through the process and really talking to the community, what they really needed, what they wanted. And then they built this amazing hospital. And that's what human centered design is, right? You, he took that, he took literally the climate, what they build with everything uniquely to them specifically and made a hospital system, made a, made a hospital that worked well for the community. And that like, when I heard that, I mean, it sounds really like, duh, like, of course, but not mm-hmm. many people go down that route. Like not many companies or whatever think about that at that granular level, right? And that's what we mean by like, it has to be literally the building block has to be human-centered yeah. design. Absolutely. Um, and, um, and and just in terms of like, you touched upon very good points there in terms of how, uh, what we like to call personal I, I hate the word determinants of health, by the way. Uh, so I'm going to uh, express my displeasure there because it kind of gives this fatalistic attitude that they are set in stone or they are going to influence. They do influence, but then you have this personal drivers that actually kind of like act as a counterbalance to quite an extent. So there have been now increasing studies in terms of like how they impact, right? Social drivers or determinants, if that's uh, everyone prefers, uh, of health are just one major layer. They can determine from population level uh, for sure of like how that particular neighborhood or you know, uh, what the needs or how things may need to be designed, right? But then personal drivers are equally important or more important because they kind of add that additional perspective. And to your point, the reason why I bring up that personal uh, drivers is, um, you know, it is important to keep in mind that individuality of, of a, at least to a quite an extent of the people that you are be serving or like working with or are part of that, um, um, the workflow that product, right, at the larger level. And the influences that they have are cultural, um, the way they grew up with, what are their family dynamics, right? Like whether they're a single child or a, like, you know, part of a larger one, whether they adopted or not, uh, where they grew up initially versus where they are right now, what was their occupation before, um, in cultural, religious differences, ethnicity, all of that actually has so much of a role to play in how you interact with the entire system, right? Not just in healthcare beyond that too, but particularly in healthcare, because like healthcare is deeply intimate. So like how you actually, what you consider reliable information, uh, whom you are going to trust or put your faith in when your life is at stake, literally in some cases, uh, that is determined by those dynamics. And we have seen that happen definitively in the in the examples you mentioned, right? When it comes to global health, but even in 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 US itself, or like in North America in general, is if you if you compare like you know um, inner city uh, communities uh, have a more tight knit sometimes community, particularly when it comes to African Americans or Hispanics. There's a lot of like you know deep rooted sort of like cultural tradition of like leaning on your neighbor or a family member, sometimes very young family members are also caregivers in that situation. Um, and so understanding those dynamics and that individuality is very important when you're designing, uh, you know, so to speak, like following the principles of human-centered design, right? Uh, and making sure that whatever you're designing is 
not just a good experience, but frankly maintains the dignity of what that person wants out of uh, out of that as well as other things around them, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, and human-centered design doesn't have to be like physical design or whatever, right? It's the thought process. Like, for example, uh, when my grandfather was <clears throat> in the hospital, <clears throat> I, um, like in his last, you know, couple weeks of his life, um, and I mean, you're South Asian, like I am, you know, when somebody's in the hospital, like literally the whole town comes in, right? You know, there, there's a revolving door. There's like, you know, literally like sometimes in some cases, 50, 60 people in the waiting room waiting to come in, right? And it can be really daunting for the hospital staff. Um, so anyways, what happened was there was just so many people coming in, right? Like obviously our family is pretty big, you know, uh, people in the community, all that stuff. So what the hospital did uh, was, so the nursing staff was seeing this and they saw that everyone's cramped in the small hospital uh, to, to see my grandfather. So what they did, they moved him to a bigger room because they're like, hey, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going back to the dignity part, what he wanted, what he, what he needs, right? Like, Unfortunately, he was passing away, but you know, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be passing away alone, right? And so they moved him to a bigger room. There were, you know, and then, you know, in the in the last moments of his life, you know, all of us were able to be in that room together, right? And, you know, that wouldn't have been happening in the other room. So like, you know, that's, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. also a human-centered design, right? You're looking at the community, you're looking at that person, what they need, and you're able to act on it. But if they didn't have a bigger room and they weren't thinking about those kind of things, when they were building the hospital, like something like that would never be able to, would never be a possibility. Absolutely. And I think those small touch points make so much of a difference, right? Uh, for not just it makes you feel like, hey, taken care of, uh, but also in terms of uh, it is it is the right thing to do. Uh, it, I'm pretty sure like from an operational perspective, they may have had to put in that extra effort uh, but now they also were not only able to serve and you know fulfill their mission of like yeah making sure your patient um, is well taken care of, but at the same time build that brand differentiation, build that brand loyalty, kind of like you know um, have uh, have give, at the end of the day, our corporations, whether it's uh, startups or larger ones, are part of this larger society, right? So you have to think about the role that you play. Um, and not just like the profit that you earn or like, you know, uh, the income that you generate from it. And so like, is that something that you played even with that short touch point? And that's a wonderful example of that is like what small things can make big difference. 100%. And I think, and I think that if like, it's, I think that with human centered design, if you do it the right way and you do it as a core principle, you can make money, right? Cause like you said, nowadays, uh, with brand loyalty is huge. Your brand is everything right like everyone associates some sort of feeling with your brand and you want that to feel good and mm-hmm. even in healthcare like you know if you're able to create a system that puts the patients caregivers clinicians whoever first you're going to gain that loyalty and you're going to gain that trust and people are going to want to come to you why do people go to mayo or you know cleveland clinic mm-hmm. or um md anderson sloan kettering all these different hospitals all around the country because they've built a name for themselves right uh, whether they're better than the hospital down the street from you, you know, that's up to debate, whatever it is, mm-hmm. but they built the name and everyone goes all around the country to, to these hospitals just because of the brand loyalty. Absolutely. And, um, and sometimes it may go even, and I think this things are changing in some hospitals as they are trying to think about these innovations, right? If we just take the examples of hospitals too, is, um, you know, why not? focus on also times when people are healthy. 
how do you just also like build that relationship while people are healthy before they need care? So when they need care, they know where to go next, uh, essentially, right? And I distinctly remember I was, uh, this was one of my formative years while I was still at Michigan uh, studying uh, for my grad school. And we had uh, a tour uh, to Henry Ford Hospital, uh, West Bloomfield. Back then, uh, it was one of the first few to kind of like come up with some of these innovations like really like beautiful indoor atrium with like, you know, we walked in and we're like, wow, this is like, there is a forest inside. How does that work? Like, how did you make space for that, right? Like walking trails, like covered area, uh, beautiful views from all the windows, uh, essentially really good food. Like I had food and I was like, oh my God, like, are you kidding me? This is a hospital food. Like it was like the restaurant was really good. Not only that, they actually had some facilities like a common community kitchen and whatnot where they used to have community classes essentially to teach like, hey, nutritional ways of cooking. And they had like, you know, a yoga sessions and health and wellness sort of like initiatives every week where people could sign up and come in. So like, that's just one example, right? Of like how you can engage even when you are not, I mean, your customer may not be just there like in a particular transaction. They are not a transaction. They are not a piece of like uh, paper or like an entry, right? At the end of the day. It's the continuous sort of engagement back and forth and building that trust and relationship for a period of time. Um, and so, um, so much can, so much more can be done if you truly uh, think it from that perspective to both build brand differentiation, loyalty and stickiness, and then figure out like there are a lot of different ways uh, to figure out different business models. Some may be direct, some may be indirect. Uh, indirect is often missed, unfortunately, in healthcare, uh, but it's a very important portion of uh, it. Yeah, man, that sounds amazing. And I think that uh, I was also listening to this other um, person. They were talking about designing hospitals, uh, like the way we have the way hospitals are not were designed in like the you know seventies and eighties or whatever. Uh, before that, you know, we we had windows that would open, and you know, a, air was flowing through the hospital system. You had a kind of a <laughs> might sound cheesy, but you kind of had a connection with the outside world a little bit, right? Like now nothing opens, we have air conditioning. Uh, and they were, they were, they were arguing that honestly, it's worse now because the air is not, the air is not recycling properly. We're depending on filters rather than what already exists outside. Um, and it was just an interesting conversation to talk about. Like, it wasn't like necessarily human centered design, but it was just like, Hey, we're kind of going back to the dignity, humanity, all that stuff. Like, we are taking mm -hmm. ourselves out of a natural environment to take care of ourselves, but we're really, are we really taking care of ourselves? And, you know, and he was talking about all these hospitals in the, in previously and how they used to work. And some of them didn't even need air conditioning because just the way all the air was able, like being routed through it. And I just found it like really fascinating. And now, and I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of short sightedness. Um, I mean, I can only speak for healthcare, but I mean, there's a lot of short sightedness mm -hmm. everywhere. Like you said, the indirect, part of it like there are other ways to make money and there's other ways you know like you know I, I always think of Costco you know they are you know their rotisserie chicken their hot dogs or whatever are massive pro massive losses right they lose millions and millions hundreds of millions of dollars every year but you know what yeah you know when you're going to Costco you're going to be able to get that hot dog for 150 well, sorry $1.50 rotisserie chicken mm -hmm. for whatever it is eight dollars ten dollars or something and guess what? They created that stickiness. They created that brand loyalty because they know that's always going to be that way. And then as you're walking through it, you feel good when you go in there. People are happy. They're, get, they're taken care of. And you just buy stuff, right? That sometimes you don't need, you know? 
Uh, all of us leave with at least a hundred dollars after we leave from Costco. But I mean, Always. but hundred percent, it is. I think Costco, like a company like Costco, really shows that you can have massive profit losses, but still make a really viable business just because of the way you make people feel and the trust that you build. And it might sound like a really stupid like comparison with healthcare, but that's literally what we're trying to do with healthcare as well. Like we're going to have a lot mm -hmm. of losses, but in the end, we need people to trust us. We need people to feel good looking, coming to us and wanting to come to us when, even when they're not sick. So I love that example of Henry Ford, where they have classes for the community and they're trying to educate the community physically, right? They're not like yelling at them and throwing them pamphlets, uh, you know, when they're leaving, it's an active, you're actively trying to become part of the community. And that's the one, I think community is the biggest word in healthcare that we need to come back to. You know, you kind of mentioned that before mm -hmm. doctors used to go, nurses used to go to the, you know, the care, you know, at, at the homes. Now we've kind of separated that, but like, I think slowly healthcare is realizing like, yo, we need to really build a community back up again, because that's honestly what a lot of people just need. They just need a community to be able to rely on because they may not have one at home. Absolutely. And I think uh, when in times of need, right, like you often lean on your neighbors um, and particularly true in certain cities more than the others. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's important to kind of not lose that, like the social, after all, we are social animals and it still holds true, right? Like that human touch, the human interaction goes such a long way. Um, and then just a pure technology uh, to quite an extent or this, like anything which doesn't involve the, the community and the other stakeholders. And it's just like, you know, looking at that transaction, right? Uh, and not everything beyond it, so. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and that's why like I'm excited for companies like you and others that are really taking that seriously. You know, I, I love the fact that you are kind of building, you know, you kind of said smart neighborhood, um, but you know, I think that there is something to that. I think that building a community, building, you know, just a place for people to find help. I think that's one thing, right? Like a lot of people yeah. don't know until you're in that situation, you don't know how jarring it can be for you. And, you know, you might be the most planned and like, everything prim and proper but like something like unfortunately something like that happens to you or your loved one all that goes out the window and your brain kind of shuts off and you don't really know what to do and you're just looking for help and i think that's the biggest thing in healthcare right now is patients caregivers clinicians even we're all just looking for help and it's just we don't know where to look sometimes or what is the right answer and i think that that is like just being able to provide them with help, being able to be like, direct them in a certain way. Imagine like just driving with no directions and be like, hey, just, it's over there somewhere, right? I mean, that's what it feels like sometimes. And if you can just give them a map to follow, I mean, it alleviates a lot of that stress. Absolutely. It's like having the Google Maps, uh, in our case, probably for dementia care and your own care as you are helping uh, take the other person to their destination. Yeah, no, man. Uh, so. I, I do want to end this before I know we're, we're getting against time, but uh, what advice, I mean, you, you said that, you know, you were a physician before, you know, you kind of came into this, like what advice would you have given yourself um, as you were going to med school? Um, oh, uh, wow. Brings back uh, amazing memories. Um, I think one of the advice I would have uh, reflected upon is actively take more time and consideration to look beyond that encounter uh, because I distinctly remember I thoroughly enjoyed those encounters actually, right? That problem solving. And because like you're trying to build this sort of like clinical knowledge and clinical pathway and 
quick decision making to a certain extent. So sometimes I realized that I myself went into that problem solving mode, uh, but the problem being the center is like what that person was facing, right? Like the signs and the symptoms and the labs and everything else that goes with it. Uh, very rarely uh, did I actually get to understand that patient or that person, who was the person behind that? Uh, essentially, what was their journey? Uh, and at least in medical school, you have some more time, uh, so you can do that. I know with you know if you're practicing, that's not possible. So I I probably don't think most people will be able to do that. But I think if you can practice that at least in medical school, I would have taken that time to you know maybe spend more hours on the floor, get to build at least understand like a few patients right who are interesting, just to get their stories, and especially people who are not like me. Uh, so that I can actively understand different perspective, right? Like whether it's low income, whether it's somebody who kind of speaks a completely different language, but coming from a different background or a culture or their ethnicity. And um, that at least kind of shapes how you look at things. And the way I see it is like those lenses that you collect over time uh, are the ways that you kind of can look at the world uh, when you are then in the future trying to solve a problem. And the more lenses you have, the more uh, you can be intentional about like, you know, even center design, making sure that you are drafting something that is lasting and actually making an impact. Uh, the fewer the lenses, unfortunately, that narrows down your vision. Um, and you, even with the best intentions, sometimes you just cannot relate um, as, as much as you want to. So that would have been the, uh, I would say one thing I would have told my, uh, you know, uh, uh, self in the past. I love that. Um, and that literally is human centered design, right? Like kind of bringing it all together. Um, just understanding people's, what, what makes them, what drives them to their actions, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it's really important to know, especially in healthcare, right? Like there's, we don't get to choose the pot, you know, kind of like your family, right? You don't get to choose your patients, right? Same thing. Um, <laughs> and you have to, and you, and you, and you have to, and I think that's not one nice thing about healthcare that's changing, right? We're moving from the do as I say, rather than to more so like, okay, let me help you. Let's figure out what you can do and let's move slowly towards that way. So it's really uh, great to see that. But if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'll definitely uh, share my LinkedIn as well. And uh, that's definitely probably the fastest. I'm very active there. Uh, you can also shoot me an email. Uh, it's very simple. It's sorabatava360.com. Uh, so feel free to, you know, reach out. I love talking to people, uh, whether you are just starting out your journey, whether you're already further along the journey. Uh, I think it's this interaction that, you know, kind of leads to serendipity and you never know how we can all change the world. 100%. Yeah. And uh, thank you for your time. Uh, this was a great conversation. Honestly, I could probably talk for another hour, but uh, I really appreciate everything you guys are building and, um, you know, the approach you're bringing to the space. I think it's much needed. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me, Zane. And since you mentioned about Costco's pizza, I think I may need to. I'm already craving. I see what you made your point about the methodology. I can taste it. So I may need to run and uh, maybe grab some. We thank actually you. grabbed some Costco pizza yesterday. So it's delicious. <laughs> it is. It, uh, it's like comfortable and, uh, you know, memorable. Yeah, no, but thank you again. Thank you.